the strongest radio allowable by law. Secrets will be revealed. Myths dispelled. From the studio gym where excuses never apply. It's Superhuman Radio with your host, Carl Lenore. Welcome back to another episode of Superhuman Radio. I am donning my my COVID-19 bandana that I can put over my face. It also comes in handy when robbing banks, but that's another lifetime. We have a great show today. You know, people love to say sugar is addictive. It's really not addictive in the clinical sense of the word. It doesn't do the type of things to the brain that addictive compounds do, but it clearly seems to drive consumption and habit forming. And we're going to be joined in a moment by Dr. Alexander Sisti uh, to talk about why that actually may be. Before we do that, uh, let's, of course, first pay homage to our title sponsor, a company that strives hard to keep you from eating too much sugar. And that's Legendary Foods. Legendary Foods has a bunch of great snacks, uh, seasoned nuts, almond butters, and, and peanut butters that Taste decadent, uh, but all of them have very little sugar. Uh, their tasty pastry, which is not depicted there, but I'll get a picture of it for the next show. It actually is a Pop-Tart with nine grams of high leucine protein and less than one gram of sugar, and it tastes amazing. And if you go to the website, eatlegendary.com, and use the code SHR10, you'll save 10% off all of your purchases there. Show them some love. Uh, they are, in fact, a really, really great company. And then... Uh, bring my guest on here and get rid of this. How you doing, Dr. Sisti? I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And especially because you're Italian. I'd <laughs> like to hang out with Italian guys, you know? So there you go. Anyway, um, what I said at the beginning of the show has been going around the internet. Uh, there are people out there who say, you know, um, sugar is like cocaine. These are people who've never done cocaine, by the way. Sugar is like cocaine. It, you know, it's addictive. Once you start eating it, and it's not addictive in the clinical sense because it doesn't uh, change the structure or density uh, of neurons in the brain in the area that it stimulates. But it clearly stimulates the brain, and it's probably a, as a result of evolution, right? Sugar, sugar was a good thing a, a couple million years ago because it was fast energy, you know, it would keep you from starving to death and get you to move more and so on. So we probably looked for it. But it, it it really isn't addictive. Would you like? Can we clear that up first of all? Um. So you know, the the term addiction, I guess, is it's like a psychological term um, that is rooted in you know human behavior. And to say that you're addicted to a substance, you know, you need like this DSM criteria of it's causing you know lack of functioning, and and there are all these sort of psychological behaviors that go along with addiction. Um, but the sort of neurobiological root of it um, comes from the release of dopamine, right? Which everyone knows is this like the pleasure, you know, the so-called pleasure, pleasure neurotransmitter. Um, but in that sense, you know, sugar is actually um, a very powerful stimulant to release dopamine in the brain. And so if you right. just look at like the neurotransmitters that are released by things like heroin and cocaine and other addictive drugs, um, sugar is definitely able to cause the release of the same neurotransmitters. Um, and maybe, in fact, those those drugs are like 
artificial versions, you know, like the original yes. drug, the OG yes. drug is, is sugar. Um, yeah, they're, le- they're leveraging something that we have e- evolved to, to respond to. Exactly. Great point. Never thought about it that way. Yeah. So, you know, the, the term of addiction, again, is a little wishy-washy, but in terms of, you know, sugar's ability to create pleasure um, and to create wanting and liking, um, and we, we call this sort of hedonic behavior, like pleasurable behavior, um, in that sense, sugar is extremely pleasurable, extremely rewarding, um, and I think that's why so many people have a hard time cutting it out of their diets. Now, now excess sugar intake has been linked to not only obesity, but obesity-related conditions uh, like type 2 diabetes, which the population is plagued with today, uh, mm-hmm. but other issues as well that we're starting to learn. And, and it's associated with 500 million uh, people worldwide affecting them and disease states. Um, you know, one of the, I guess sugar has like a really interesting and rich history um, and kind of we can see what happened in the United States is the price of sugar goes down, the consumption of sugar goes up, and the sort of sugar-related health problems um, become more and more prevalent in our society. Um, we can get into that in a second, but, you know, so many people, uh, 70% of Americans are overweight, 40% of Americans are obese. Um, sugar is, you know, playing this sort of outsized role. But then as other countries in the world begin to, you know, get more developed and, you know, they start importing our Western lifestyle, our diet, you know, they start getting McDonald's and, you know, venti frappuccinos. And as the access to sugar becomes more widely accessible, um, then it just, you know, starts affecting people all over the globe. Um, and there's actually this, you know, kind of like a historical trajectory, um, which actually first started in Britain, then the United States, and now is kind of spreading, you know, I, I think Mexico right now might be the most uh, obese country by, um, you know, by proportion. So let's talk about the uh, the relationship. We've talked, we've heard a lot about the gut brain connection. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, uh, you, your research, uh, what what led to your research? What preceded it that made you look at these uh, these questions? Yeah, sure. So, I guess at the outset, there's um, you know there's two main questions that that we wanted to answer. Um, the first question we we've, we've sort of been getting at, um, which is that throughout our human history and, you know, our species just has this weakness, this insatiable desire to consume sugar. So, uh, you know, about 200 years ago in the 1800s, when sugar was pretty rare, the average consumption was only, you know, about 10 pounds per person. But as sugar has increased in availability and decreased in price, as it's, you know, added to all sorts of foods, our ability to consume sugar has skyrocketed. So now the average American eats 124 pounds of sugar a year. Wow. Which is insane. Uh, added sugars are about 15% of the Americans' daily caloric intake, just added sugars. Um, you know, and, and as I mentioned, a huge segment, almost the majority of our population is overweight, obese, diabetes, metabolic syndrome. And so there's this whole public health ec- epidemic where sugar is playing like a crucial role. And so we wanted to understand what is it about sugar? You know, unlike, for example, fat, like th- this example I sort of gave, you know, you're, you're at dinner, someone puts a big steak in front of you, you eat the steak and the steak makes you feel full. It triggers this satiety mm-hmm. reaction. But then at the end of the dinner, someone puts ice cream or something sweet in front of you. And then you just have this 
sort of unlimited capacity to consume sugar. Um, so, so where does that come from? Why do we like sugar so much? And the second thing is, well, the most obvious answer to the first question is because sugar tastes sweet. Um, and so, you know, my lab, we study the sense of taste and we have discovered many of the receptors and neural circuits involved in taste. Um, and so the most obvious answer for why we like sugar so much is because it tastes sweet and we like sweet things. But yeah, that, but, but that but that that nuance, we like sweet things, yeah, is a result of millions of years yes. of, of selection pressure. Yeah. Because that was like like if we look at substrates and fuel, that's gold. Yeah. Platinum. Actually, Maybe it's platinum, actually. Yeah. You know. Actually, yeah. that's what I that's what sort of drew me to study the sense of taste in the first place. So with all your other senses, you know, if I were to ask you you know, what auditory stimuli, what music do you like to listen to? Or what do you find to be a beautiful painting? You know, you and me and all your listeners, we're all going to disagree. Um, and we can sit here debating for hours about what we like. But taste has this wonderful evolutionary hardwired logic where the things that taste good. So there's five tastes, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and umami. And they, they break down into things that taste good and things that taste bad. And the things that taste good are sweet, which is, uh, is typically like sugars. So sweet provides energy. Umami, which is the taste of amino acids. So that gives you protein, which you need to build your body. Um, and low salt, because your body needs electrolytes. Um, whereas the things that taste bad, bitter and sour, tend to be poisonous, toxic, spoiled foods. So in actually the neurobiological substrate, all of these tastes, which my boss has worked on for 20 years, um, they travel in segregated sort of neural pathways and go to dedicated parts of your brain. So this information is always sort of separated. It's super hardwired, super innate, conserved across many species. And things that are sweet just immediately trigger this liking, wanting reaction, likely because, you know, it, it gives you calories and energy. Yeah, quick um, energy. Right. But, but so that brings me to the second point, which is, you know, so if sweetness was the only thing that could explain our attraction to sugar, um, then we have these things, these artificial sweeteners. Now, these, uh, these, it's sort of a mistake that they, you know, they're just, they exist. Um, they're chemicals that bind to the sweet taste receptor. And they're actually much more effective at stimulating your sense of sweet taste than any natural sugar. They're hundreds of times sweeter. Right. But, if, if those chemicals could perfectly impersonate sugar, then they should have replaced sugar in our diets. So they were discovered over 150 years ago. Um, and if those things like saccharin, aspartame, um, sucralose, if those could act as, or Splenda equal sweet and low, um, if those things could replace sugar, then, then they would have. But, you know, diet sodas have existed for decades and they have not really decreased measurably the consumption of regular soda. You know, we're still on that upsloping curve in terms of how much sugar we consume, even though we have something that's a much more potent um, sort of agonist for the taste system. So, well, and I, I would offer from yeah. an evolutionary perspective that plants, uh, the, the goal of the plant is to continue the species. Mm -hmm. And the one of one of the ways that plants continue the species is to get other organisms or animals or bees to interact with them to help spread them. Yeah. And I, I would, I would suggest that, and please, you know, shoot me down here that 
the intelligence in plants somehow figured out that these humans love sugar. If we could taste sweet, they'd pick us up and carry us places, and we would then proliferate to a greater degree. And that becoming sweet was actually an objective of plants. Yeah, I mean, they they devote a lot of their energy, the plants devote a lot of their energy and resources into producing, you know, sugar-rich fruits, um, which kind of trick us into eating them or sweet nectar, which gets bees to pollinate them. Um, And and so it's this extremely potent um, motivator that, you know, it's, but it's not just in humans or in mice and rats. It's, you know, flies, bees, worms, uh, deer, pigs, everything. Yeah. Yeah. And Um, the, the purpose of delicious fruit, because keep in mind that, that fruit trees have been around way before commodes were invented and central and central sanitation. The purpose of the fruit was to get you to eat it. And then one day poop it out in this, in this fertile rich compound, Mm -hmm. which is your excretion where it could then grow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like symbiosis where the the plant is, uh, is, is producing sugar, which, you know, we will seek out. Um, and, and naturally these, uh, you know, ripe fruits only occur at a certain time of year, um, and they're super energy dense. So, you know, going back to these hardwired neural circuits, we would expect that there are these hardwired pathways so that, you know, that the few months of the year where you can get that ripe tomato, the ripe apple, um, you're going to sort of seek it out, hone in on it and, um, and try to consume it. But from the artificial sweeteners, we sort of intuited or guessed that maybe there's more to this sugar sensing um, than just your your tongue and your and your sense of taste. Um, so, so that's sort of what led us to look for other kind of uh, kind of neural pathways. Because in fact, you, you point out in in uh, the paper that uh, things like diet soda and uh, and artificial sweeteners that are used in coffee, while they may taste similar, and we know that we know that glucose signaling occurs at the tongue. Mm-hmm. The body prepares for something. It goes, ooh, like they, like the, the, the frontline guys say, hey, it's coming. And then the pancreas and everything else start to work. But we still know that even though they taste like sugar, the brain knows they're not sugar, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it's almost like the artificial sweeteners can trick your tongue, um, but they can't trick your brain. Um <laughs> So we, we actually, you know, we, we tested this directly. So, um, you know, I think we have a lot of anecdotal experience. Anyone who's had a diet soda sort of knows it doesn't really, you know, give you that same kind of feeling. Um, and, uh, you know, the sugar-free candies, they're really, you know, kind of garbage. Um, but but we, we wanted to test it in kind of like laboratory settings um, to really kind of hone in on what is it that we're preferring and, and how does it kind of work? So we actually set up these these mouse cages where we, we do a sort of diet Coke versus regular Coke challenge um, for a mouse where we give it two water bottles, one with artificial sweetener and one with uh, sugar. And, you know, initially they both taste sweet, right? So the mouse is like, oh, wow, this one's really good. Oh, wow, the other one tastes really good. But after about 24 hours, um, the mouse is only drinking the, the regular sugar, um, and then by 48 hours, it's like 90% drinking the sugar and barely touching the artificial sweetener, even though they both sort of taste, still taste good. Now, when we talk about artificial sweetener, there are a couple natural sweeteners, if you will, right? So mm-hmm. sugar alcohol yeah, uh, obviously is, is one of them. 
Um, d- d- does do we talk about sugar alcohol when we talk about artificial sweeteners? Yeah. You know, so I guess like the the general my general definition of an artificial sweetener would be something that stimulates that sweet taste receptor um, without providing you uh, like biologically available energy. So something that you can't metabolize. Uh, you know, so something that you synthesize in the lab versus something that you could extract from a fruit. You know, as long as it's you know can't be broken down into ATP. Um, then I would call that like an artificial sweetener. Okay, okay, okay. So you're, but basically, you're saying any non-nutritive sweet thing, yes, is exactly. is falling into this category. Yeah. So, so your research was done on rodents initially, correct? Yes, because uh, describe, describe 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 how the study was designed. Right. So, so we're trying to, like I said, we're trying to answer two questions: Why do we like sugar so much, and why do artificial sweeteners not really work? Um, so, you know, we do this this two bottle test. And we see that the mice love the sugar. This sort of confirms our anecdotal experiences. Um, but the crazy thing is in our lab, in studies of the, the taste system, we have made these genetically engineered mice that don't have a sweet taste receptor. Um, so these mice are sort of sweet blind animals. They can't taste anything sweet. And when we do the same test with them, they also can identify and pick out the sugar. So What that means is there's something about the sugar that's working totally independently of this sweet taste pathway. Um, So so these animals can't taste anything, and yet they still like the sugar. So the sugar is acting somewhere else in some other mechanism. Um, And and so actually, we, we thought that maybe it had to do with the sugar molecule itself. So not just the sweet taste receptor, but the sugar molecule. So we can give a sort of a fake sugar molecule. This is not, doesn't really taste good and it doesn't provide you energy, but the the molecule, the structure looks almost exactly like glucose and it has no energy. And then when we test that with artificial sweetener, we see that the mice also like the fake sugar. So what that gives us is mice can like sugar without tasting it and mice can like sugar without even giving it calories. So there's something sort of special and unique about the sugar molecule that your body is somehow sensing, not, you know, actually we can infuse it into the gut too, and that also works. But you have this extra, you know, we always talk about like six senses, but you sort of have this sixth sense that can help you identify and drive you towards the, the sort of sugar, sugar-containing substances. So in other words, the sweetness isn't the reward. The sweetener is the identifier. Yeah. And But then the reward has to be there too. Otherwise, we're like, oh, we got fooled. We're not going to keep eating that. Exactly. Exactly. Right? Like, the, I don't know. Sometimes in psychology, they talk about like the conditioned stimulus and the unconditioned stimulus, like the Pavlov dog, um, where the sweetness is actually like the bell that's being rung. Um, it's the cue that tells you you're about to get sugar. Whereas there's another pathway that's sort of telling your body, hey, I actually got the thing that I needed. Um, And so then, you know, we did a whole bunch of experiments to try to figure out where's the sugar being sensed and how is it um, how is it getting to your brain? Okay, so um, to to just kind of dive a little bit deeper, are these are these actual receptors in the gut that have like a mosaic that sugar doxin, or are we talking about microbes that produce chemical signals that get mm-hmm. to the brain? Yeah. So, um, you know, what we, 
there's a whole bunch of experiments in between the, the behavior and, and what you're asking. But, you know, we, we did want to know what what is sugar triggering and how is sugar triggering the body to be able to recognize and prefer it? And what we knew. So so how do you you know discover an unknown receptor? And what we knew is that both the real sugar and the fake sugar um, are transported into your body through the same sort of transport mechanism. So, so sugar has a number of physiologic roles. It can be metabolized into ATP. Maybe your body's sensing ATP. Sugar, you know, when you eat sugar, it goes in your digestive tract, and then it actually has to be transported inside your body and gives you a rise in blood sugar. Maybe your body is sensing a rise in blood sugar. Or maybe there's some special receptor somewhere in your body that the sugar can trigger to, to drive these behaviors. Um, and actually, this fake sugar molecule that we used is very elegant because it doesn't give you calories. It doesn't cause any hormones to be released. So no insulin is released. It doesn't affect your pancreas. Um, but it is transported through this, this one transporter. Um, it's called SGLT1. It is the main transporter that your body uses to, to move sugar from the outside of the body to the inside of the body. Uh, and so we we hypothesize that maybe this transporter is actually playing a role as not just a transporter to move sugar, but as a sugar sensor uh, in particular. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we did a bunch of experiments where we can give other. So this is actually really cool. So table sugar is a mixture of glucose and fructose. Right. And glucose is transported through SGLT1. But fructose, even though fructose has calories, it is not transported through SGLT1. It has a different mechanism. And fructose, if you do that artificial sweetener versus fructose behavior, the mice don't end up preferring the fructose. And uh, we can actually look at the brain, at the neurons that are activated by glucose and they're activated by glucose. They're activated by the fake non-caloric sugar. But fructose, which has calories, doesn't stimulate those same neurons. But that would make sense because I think it's accepted that fructose is not readily and immediately available. It doesn't convert right to glucose. It has to be transported to the liver, mm -hmm. technically stored, yeah. then reduced. So the body would go, that's great. We'll save that for later, but we need something for now. Right. Glucose itself is the primary substrate. So, you know, the whole goal of glucose is to generate ATP for your cells. And uh, the all the enzymes that do that need glucose specifically. So even though there are other sugars, fructose, mannose, ribose, um, everything has to be metabolically converted into glucose in order to provide your body with energy. So maybe it makes a little bit of evolutionary sense that this mechanism is specifically tuned um, to to glucose in particular. It's like you're, you're, you're searching your house for money and you find a savings bond. Yeah. And you go, well, I can't cash that now, but I'll keep it because I'll be able to cash it later. Meanwhile, I'm still looking for legal tender that I can spend now. The body is doing the same thing. It's going, fructose is good. We'll save it, but that's not what we're looking for right now. So that makes perfect sense. So talk about the uh, the discovery of this. Um, uh, brain this area. Yes, exactly. Right. So, you know, this behavior that we're talking about, the fact that the mouse learns to identify the sugar over the artificial sweetener, um, 
it's not that simple, right? It, you know, they're both of these things for a mouse who lives in a standard lab mouse cage. He's only had water and mouse chow. Um, both of these things are the most delicious thing that the mouse has ever tasted before. You know, imagine living your whole life eating just like oatmeal and water, and then someone puts a Diet Coke in front of you. That's, that's still the best thing you've ever tasted. So we figured that there had to be somewhere in the brain um, that's helping you to distinguish between these two um, stimuli. And they're both attractive, right? So if we looked at the brain areas that are important for taste, they would both light up for, for these things because they're both sweet. But what we were looking for was a part of the brain that is only activated by the sugar that could specifically respond to the sugar and maybe drive this behavior. And so what we did is we you know, gave mice access to both of these solutions and or either one of the solutions, and then we can look at their brains for this uh, proxy for, uh, for neural activity. And we found this area of the brain, it's called the NST, the nucleus of the solitary tract. Um, and it's actually, it's embedded deep in your brainstem. So people talk about like the reptile brain. Um, and, and that's where this nucleus is. It's one of the most primitive, basic um, brain nuclei. But that kind of makes sense to us, right? Because we said that Bees can do this, ants can do this, rats and mice. Um, so it's this very primitive brain nucleus. It responds to sugar, but it doesn't respond to artificial sweetener. And it also responds to sugar in the knockout mice. So it doesn't depend on the sense of taste. Um, and it responds to the fake sugar as well. So we figured that this brain area met all the criteria um, to be the, the sort of brain nucleus responsible for sugar preference. Interesting. Yeah. So do you think that this is re do you think that artificial sweeteners or let's just say non-nutritive sweeteners, while they're giving people things that trigger the tongue sensation of sweet, that the body may actually go, I didn't get what I was looking for. I didn't get that sugar orgasm. I'm yeah. going to just keep eating until I get it. Do you think that non-nutritive sweeteners could actually drive overconsumption in searching for real sugar? Yeah, that's, that's a, a great question. Um, you know, we don't really have any data that specifically addresses that. Um, you know, I, I've heard that assertion kind of thrown a lot, thrown around. Um, you know, I know that the artificial sweeteners don't trigger this sort of compense, like these metabolic responses. Um, uh, but sort of from, from my perspective as a gut brain NST sort of expert, um, I know that the artificial sweeteners don't trigger the NST, which is really like, that's kind of telling your brain, I got what it wants. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, it, it's kind of- talk about, talk, talk, about, talk about the relationship between the brain cell and the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is a very interesting right. uh, wiring harness, if you will, that runs from the ends of the body into the brain. Yeah, this, it's, it's really fascinating. So, so next, you know, after we found the part of the brain that is- possibly responsible for this, this sugar um, craving behavior, um, we wanted to know where the information, how is it getting to the brain? Because it's not from the tongue. Um, and so this area is actually, it's very famous as being the primary recipient of information from this, the vagus nerve. Um, and so what's the vagus nerve? You out of your brain, there's 12 pairs of nerves. They're called cranial nerves. They include your optic nerve for seeing, your olfactory nerve for smelling. Most of these nerves are contained to your head. They control, you know, senses and movements and stuff like that in your head. Uh, but one of them, the vagus nerve vagus, 
comes from the Latin word that means to wander, like vagabond. Um, mm-hmm. The vagus nerve, it comes out of your, your brain, deep in your brainstem, and it forms this neural pathway, this highway, um, where the vagus nerve goes to your gut, goes to your stomach, your intestines, and it also goes to your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, your liver. So really, it is the, the primary neural conduit through which your brain learns about your body. So, you know, here we're talking about the gut-brain axis specifically, but it's part of this broader, um, you know, what I would call it like the mind-body connection, which, you know, sometimes a term is thrown around in like East. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like this, yeah, this touchy-feely term, but this really is, this is the wiring harness of your body. Yes. When we think of a car, the wiring harness connects everything to in, in the car to one another. Uh-huh. And the vagus nerve kind of serves at that. And it's been it's been implicated in a lot of, of functions and reactions in the gut and in the heart, as you yeah. point out. Yeah, it's um, it is really um, kind of underappreciated, unknown um, thing. I mean, I don't want to discredit the the yogis that have been you know practicing yoga and meditation for thousands of years. Like you know, they're they're sort of onto something, which is that there is a, some relationship between your brain and your body, right? Like your brain needs to know. What is my heart rate? What is my blood pressure? How can I control these things? Is there food in my stomach? Because the vagus nerve controls uh, digestive motility. Exactly. Through the, yeah, exactly. exactly. And so um, now actually our paper and a few other recent papers are really kind of opening up this whole world of the vagus nerve. So, um, you know, until about maybe 10 years ago, it was just sort of hinted at. But um, us and others are really trying to dissect um, what information specifically is carried through the vagus nerve? They thought it was only for vomiting and nausea. Um, but what our study shows is actually that you can have very important positive information. So information about your nutrients, information about the distendedness of your stomach, information about the, um, the osmolarity. So that's the, the number of dissolved things like electrolytes and salts. So actually... It's this very complicated, um, you know, wonderful neural pathway that's telling your brain and feeding right into this super primitive hardwired part of your brain um, that can very profoundly, we think, affect affect your behavior. So the funny thing about that is uh, 10 years ago, I did a show about a phenomenon called Romheld syndrome. Uh-huh. Romheld syndrome is a reaction from the gut that causes tachycardia, palpitations, Hmm. arrhythmia. Hmm. And so people who suffer from Romheld syndrome will have a big meal. And then all of a sudden they'll develop palpitations, uh, rhythm issues that they can feel. They go to the doctor, they get an EKG, they get an echo. And the doctor goes, there's nothing wrong with you. They go home. They think they were crazy. Three months later, they have this big meal and it happens again. And what we discovered in that show And since that show is that some people either through the phenomenon of the gut leaking into the vagus nerve or uh, because of structural changes in their body or structural uh, components of their body, that when the gut blows up, it presses against the vagus nerve, that it's in fact the vagus nerve that's causing these changes in heart rhythm. And it's a mechanical reaction Mm -hmm. uh, because the vagus nerve comes down past along the esophagus and then literally attaches to the uh, outside of the gut all the way around and then back down. So when you stretch the gut too far, 
the vagus nerve gets tweaked. Yeah. And that's where Romheld syndrome actually comes from. And when people realize this, they can address it, don't eat too big of a meal, and they never have these episodes again. So the vagus nerve has always been very fascinating to mm -hmm. me. And we also know that nurses, when uh, people are in uh, a, a clinical setting and they start to get anxious, the nurses can actually do something called the vagus massage, where they yeah. massage their neck and their heart rate will actually drop. Yeah. Um, it, it It's wonderful because it contains... Uh, in, in neuroscience, we talk about sensory versus motor information. So sensory information comes into your brain, motor information goes out and controls your body. And the vagus nerve is mixed. It contains both um, sensory and motor uh, motor information. And just like you have the sort of patellar tendon reflex, just like, you know, when you're, the doctor taps your, your kneecap and your patella swings and you have these involuntary reflexes, the vagus nerve controls um, many autonomic or involuntary reflexes regarding your viscera. Um, and so that you're talking about the, there's a, the carotid artery sort of bifurcates in your neck. And right in that bifurcation, you have a bundle of vagal nerve cells. And when you push on them, it sort of sends a signal that your vagus nerve all of a sudden thinks, oh my gosh, my blood pressure is through the roof. And then it does a reflex to your heart that says, yo, slow down the blood pressure. Um, Interesting. My favorite illustration of this is there's actually a really funny YouTube video of these two Marines and one guy karate chops the other in the neck and he karate chops him right here in the, the, the carotid sinus of your vagus nerve and the other guy just passes out immediately like a light. Um, and so the, the vagus nerve has these very profound um, abilities to affect your behavior. The, the cardiac component was known, but the extent to which it could control our feeding behavior and give us pleasure through food, um, do these things like, you know, eat 124 pounds of sugar a year and hijack into our dopamine reward circuits. Um, that is kind of a, a total mystery. And, uh, you know, that's what we sort of unlocked here in, in our paper. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to pick it up about what you do with these rodents and how you created these knockout rodents to test this theory. Okay. Sure. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Superhuman Radio. And at the end of the show, you'll be able to leverage some of this information, perhaps, uh, to control your own sugar cravings. I'm going to talk about mine when we come back also, because I deal with them as well. Do you remember those delicious toaster pastries you had when you were a kid? You know, the rectangular sugar-filled snacks? Well, guess what? <clears throat> Legendary Foods has just made low-carb toaster pastry. This is the first of its kind, and honestly, these things are amazing. They have three to four net carb, less than one gram of sugar, and nine grams of protein. You can eat them right out of the wrapper or lightly toast them. The only question is, which flavor? Strawberry or brown sugar cinnamon? They're available at eatlegendary.com and Amazon. New Mass Pro Synthogen X2 just upped its own legendary game. To distance itself even further from the rest of the pack, Synthogen X2 now has double the key active ingredients. If you've ever wondered what steroid-like recovery feels like, Synthogen X2 delivers. See why others compare it favorably to powerful bodybuilding drugs at Synthogen.com. Mass Pro Synthogen. When you train with it, you'll gain with it. I love beef. And if you love beef, listen up. I've discovered the best tasting beef in the world, and that's not an exaggeration. At Piedmontese.com. 
The Piedmontese breed is famous from Italy for being lean and unbelievably tender with half the fat and calories of traditional even typically tough cuts are tender when it comes from the Piedmontese cows. And for the first time ever, Piedmontese cows are being raised here in the USA. Get two free 10-ounce New York strips when you purchase $50 or more at Piedmontese.com with code SHR. Go to P-I-E-D-M-O-N-T-E-S-E.com and use code SHR today. You will never eat any other type of beef ever again. Besides way to gauge your recovery from workout to workout, wonder if the money you're spending on your nootropic supplements are actually improving brain function. Maybe you're aging and you're noticing some changes in memory. Wouldn't being able to really test your brain be of great value? Well, now you can with great accuracy with the brain... The Brain Gauge lets you test essential components of brain health and track your brain health history and all in the comfort of your own home. Go to gaugeyourbrain.com and use code SHR for $150 off this amazing device. That's gaugeyourbrain.com and SHR for $150 off. Imagine if you had a digital twin, one that you could compare your own health and fitness outcomes to, one that showed you whether or not the things you're doing, food you're eating, or drinks you're drinking are actually working for you or against you well now you can the first ever advanced epigenetic saliva test that compares 20 million different data points of your dna to help predict what is aging you faster or keeping you younger is being introduced to my audience at a 70 percent discount from the normal price go to seeds.md slash epigenetic dash test today to learn how to get your own digital twin that will help you take the steps to live long Longer and stay stronger. Don't wait because this is a limited time offer, not available anywhere. Once these tests are gone, they're gone. Again, go to seeds.md slash epigenetic dash test today to learn more. This is the Superhuman Channel, where brawn and brains finally meet. <laughs> Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Alexander Sisti about how sugar drives consumption. A lot of people have talked about this for a long time. His group has discovered, really, what makes us want more sugar. So um, talk about the uh, research that you did with these uh, these little rodents here. Yeah, so in inside, like to make a claim, like we have discovered the the neural circuit um, that is important for sugar preference behavior, Um, we really use two criteria in science to prove causality, um, necessity and sufficiency. So the first is we we have to show if if this gut-brain pathway is really important, is really necessary for our sugar preference behavior, then the first prediction is that if we silence it or if we ablate the pathway, um, then it should eliminate the craving for sugar. So what we did, and this is using a you know suite of different genetic trickery, um, which is sort of unique to to mice, which which is why we use mice in the first place, is we can genetically target the sugar responding cells in their NST in that brainstem area that is important for that we think is important for liking sugar, and we can we actually inject a a virus, a genetically modified virus. And the virus's purpose is to silence neural activity just in those cells. Um, and when we do that, 
Uh, so now this mouse is normal in every way, except there is a small population of neurons in its NST that doesn't work anymore. They're not dead. They just can't communicate. And we take that mouse and we put that mouse into a cage and we give it the same sugar versus artificial sweetener test again. A normal mouse drinks, you know, 10 times more sugar than artificial sweetener. These mice have no preference. They drink them exactly equally, um, which is totally insane. We have specifically silenced, um, well, we've silenced their attraction to sugar, but if we take these mice and we test their sense of taste, right, because we want to show that they still can taste sweet, we can give them artificial sweetener versus water or sugar versus water just as a sweetness test and they're totally normal in that regard. So they drink the normal volumes, they can be attracted to sweet things, but specifically this behavior of liking sugar um, is totally ablated in these animals. And we can actually even do it in the vagus nerve itself. So um, I did a few um, experiments, yeah, I, I did a few experiments where I can expose the vagus nerve in the neck of the mouse um, both sides, because you have to silence both branches of the vagus nerve. Right. Whenever you're doing a neural silencing experiment, um, it's very important to do both sides because you can sort of compensate. And we can specifically silence the vagus nerve as well. Um, and these animals also totally lose their attraction to sugar. So that's the first half. So silencing this gut-brain pathway or silencing these cells in the brain um, can totally ablate and make a mouse insensitive to sugar. The second half of our, you know, criteria for causality is sufficiency, which which is to say, um, is the activity in these brain cells sufficient to create a preference? Um, and so, so these experiments were done by my collaborator, Wei Yi. Um, he's another uh, graduate student in, in our lab. Um, and he did this really, really beautiful experiment where he, using, again, sort of genetic trickery, we can target the sugar responsive cells in the NST. But this time he targets them a, it's a receptor. It's like an activating receptor that responds to a drug, but this receptor doesn't exist anywhere in your body. So if you're a normal person and you take this drug, it has no effect. It's a completely inert drug, but you can take an excitatory receptor for the drug and you can introduce it specifically into the NST cells that respond to sugar. And so then, so now it, it gives us a, a pathway to specifically activate these cells. And then he gave the mice um, access to two water bottles, one with a grape flavor and one with a cherry flavor. And one of these bottles is sweeter. Let's say that the cherry bottle is sweeter. And he gives them, you know, an initial choice. And of course the mouse likes the sweeter cherry flavor. But then he puts the drug specifically into the other bottle, into the, the grape bottle, and he sort of spikes it. But what the drug is doing is when the mouse drinks that bottle, the drug will be ingested into its system and it will go and turn on those cells in the NST. So he has, we have made a sort of totally fake sugar, um, which the mouse can learn to associate with the cues with the, you know, that, it, but it's still, it's still non-nutritive, but it's no, non-nutritive at all. This is like, it's like a drug that just, um, that does everything but, nu but give the, the nutrition value. Yeah. 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 So it is. So what, so what you really discovered here is the ideal non-nutritive sweetener. It, in a way we could use this, you know, this neural pathway to hijack these, um, 
you know, these, we, we found the neural circuit that you could hijack that's responsible for these, um, these sugar cravings. Now, the dangerous that you could say, well, why don't I make something that I could give you? But that would just be like an addictive drug, right? Because that, because then you just crave that. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You just, but, but, but wait a minute, but wait a minute. But if, from, from a, from a, from a food science standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, you know, let's just connect some dots. So non-nutritive sweeteners aren't satisfying as, as sugar. Uh, so we continue to go back to sugar, but people consume way too much sugar. If you had a non-nutritive sweetener that leveraged this science, they could have one sugar-free candy bar and mm-hmm. actually feel satisfied from it. Yeah. So first of all, we explain why the artificial sweeteners are not good. And it's because of their failure to activate these cells. So they have no effect. They affect your tongue, but they don't affect this gut brain pathway. And so you're right that the, the huge sort of implication of this is that if we could figure out how to manipulate and, um, change the activity of this gut-brain pathway, then maybe the ultimate goal here would be you could create an artificial sweetener that wouldn't just trick your tongue, but one that could trick your brain um, as well. And so that that's like the sort of ultimate, you know, gold. Yeah, but see, though, so this, kind of, this kind of research has been done before, right? Well, once we identify a receptor, we can make some sort of uh, receptor modulator yeah. that docks in it and 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 specifically activate certain portions of the mosaic of the receptor right. to give us the outcome we want. And as long as you can find, so re- theoretically you could use one of the non-nutritive sweeteners now uh, by adding a receptor modulator to it where you get the tongue feel, you get the tongue taste, but the receptor is activated and your brain goes, Oh, that must be sugar. Yeah. So actually my boss, um, Charles Zucker, he discovered 20 years ago what the the gene for the sweet taste receptor was. And so he used that information 20 years ago um, to try to develop the world's greatest artificial sweetener. But they failed because what they were trying to do is they made this, I mean, it was an amazing effort where what they could do is they could put the taste receptor into a cell culture system and sort of massively test you know, millions of different compounds to try to find the ones that could specifically activate the sweet taste receptor. But the reason that those efforts were sort of doomed and the efforts of, you know, Coca-Cola and Frito-Lay or whoever is trying to make an artificial sweetener that tastes sweet is that you're missing a huge part of the picture. Um, and so what our research does it is it opens up this new avenue that, oh, if we could instead think about targeting the, the gut-brain axis instead of just your tongue, um, that th- that could be a road to um, you know to finding the, the holy grail of artificial sweeteners. Now, th- there's a sort of hiccup here. The problem is that you know we have discovered the pathway, um, and we have discovered the receptor that is used to trigger the pathway SGLT1 that I that I mentioned earlier. The problem is that SGLT1 is the primary sugar transporter for your whole body. So. If you were to, so I made, I actually, in the process of this, um, this, uh, research, yeah, it would, it would have downstream metabolic effects. If you block it, you're blocking like everything that sugar does for your cells as well. Exactly. So I used, you know, we used CRISPR to generate a mouse that has, that lacks this receptor. The problem is that receptor is also in every single cell that lines your gut that uses it to absorb sugar. And so now in these mice, sugar is actually toxic. They can't even eat sugar because it has so many, um, bad consequences. So there's 
there's kind of a key missing piece. So now, but see, that's where so that that's where the selective receptor modulator would have to come in. The, the you know the receptors have a, a mosaic of, right. of, of domains, you know. So maybe well, there's a way to come up with a selective receptor modulator. Well, actually, that the fake sugar molecule that I mentioned earlier, MDG, um, it it is not metabolized, but it, it is an agonist for this transporter. The mm-hmm. problem is that because its structure so closely mimics the structure of glucose, um, that it actually in long term, in the long term, it's actually toxic to the mice as well, because it can be transported into your intestinal cells, but it can't be transported out. So it sort of clogs up and gums up the water. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. So, so if I were, you know, the head of a major biotech company, um, no, but, but the way to sort of capitalize on this is really we would want to find what the cells are, the specific cells that are responsible for signaling to the vagus Upst- nerve. Upst- or downstream, exactly. Like in the middle exactly. of the stream. So we identified yeah. the receptor, we identified the vagal neurons, but we don't know what, which cells in the GI tract specifically express this receptor. And so- Now what if, now what if the microbiome comes into play here? What if, the, what if these- chemicals these molecules mm-hmm. uh, are consumed by our microbes and our microbes then poop out a a right. uh a, a a neurotransmitter that then does the rest of the job then, yeah, then you we, could capitalize on that as well the, well the microbiome is also super hot on fire uh, research field these days um the thing is that with our our experiments where we're looking at single neuron activity um, you know, we can look at single neuron vagal activity and I can flow glucose directly into the intestines of an anesthetized mouse and look at single neuron responses. And we know exactly what the signal is. And so we're sure that the signal is, you know, glucose or anything that can stimulate this receptor. And actually, just as we did the necessary insufficiency with the NST, we could do necessary insufficiency with this receptor where any ligand of it will stimulate these vagal cells. And actually, we did a pharmacological blocking experiment and we blocked the receptor and that totally eliminates the responses. Um, but, But sort of what I was getting at is what are the cells in your gut that communicate to the vagus nerve? So your GI tract, 99% of the cells that line your GI tract are enterocytes, which do absorption and digestion and metabolism. They're, you know, line the brush border. They transport nutrients and do the work of digestion. But within those, there's 1% of the cells that are called enteroendocrine cells. And these Mm. cells have a more sort of neurological um, developmental origin and, and they trans they're transmitting information. Exactly. They secrete neurotransmitters. So like serotonin, um, norepinephrine, uh, different signaling molecules, um, like serotonin, right? Like you hear SSRIs, which you know, you know, are a treatment for depression. Um, there's actually as much serotonin in your gut um, as there is in your brain. And so there's this tiny population of cells. They're very sparse, but they have these direct communications to the vagus nerve. Um, and perhaps by uh, unlocking, you know, which of those, because there are also different types that secrete different hormones, respond to different things, but understanding more about those cells and how they communicate, um, and, and those cells could certainly be the ones that respond to the bacterial metabolites from the, um, you know, from your, yeah. from your microbiome, right? Because there's the whole question, how are the microbes in your gut communicating to your brain? 
Well, we know what the pathway could very well be, right? The vagus nerve, which goes right into your, you know, reptile. Which is, which has got to be where cravings come from, right? So I have the, I, so for years I didn't crave sugar, but loosened up my diet and I, and I start looking for sweet things after a meal and it's, it's truly a craving. It's like, I'm not satisfied. Yeah. I'm not satiated until I eat something sweet after a meal. So it's clearly this phenomenon. So do so do we have any any evidence that the 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 terrain or the landscape of these receptor biogenesis increases in certain environments and decreases in certain environments? Can die? You know, we know that going on a ketogenic diet completely changes the landscape of the gut. Is it possible to eliminate these receptors from the gut? That is a, I mean, so, so with sp- this specific receptor, this SGLT1 receptor, um, it's just, it's so vital for survival that to eliminate it entirely, like I said, would be, yeah. uh, have severe, yeah. uh, consequences. If you could modulate it or eliminate it in a specific population of cells, that would be much more targeted. But you raise a really, really excellent question of what happens to this circuit in disease states. So in an obese person, um, who has so many of these cravings, who's, you know, has really developed a disordered pattern of eating where they, you know, require so much stimulation to satiate their, um, you know, their, their sort of neural cravings. Is this neural substrate modulated? Do they have more vagal neurons, less vagal neurons? Is their vagus nerve more sensitive? Um, or, or, or does the affinity, yeah, does the affinity to the receptor change where it constantly has to be fed again and again and again? Yeah. Um, but, you know, in, in our study, we only really looked at, um, nor like normal, I mean, but wild, not non disease state, non disease state. Yeah, the one clear place that we could work to extend, um, extend our studies would be looking at you know animal models of obesity, how the substrates sort of adapt in that case, and there are also even animal models of eating disorders, um, you know, like anorexia, you can make um, anorexic mice, um, through different sort of mechanisms. And yeah, you just have to nag them. You yeah. have to nag them. Stop eating. Look, we have to take our last commercial break. When we come back, I want to talk about what your plan is, uh, what the plan of your team is moving forward. Sure, Stay tuned. Sure. This is fascinating. I, I really believe that you're on the brink of coming up with the solution for an actually non-nutritive sweetener that will actually satisfy us. Stay tuned. Crank your muscle gains to new heights by transforming every gram of protein you eat into three grams with mass signs. With 100,000 HUTs of protease per capsule, Masszymes increases your absorption of key amino acids, resulting in stronger, healthier digestion of proteins and certain vitamins that not only multiplies the impact of the protein you eat, but can also repair a damaged intestinal wall. Go to Masszymes Flash, SHR for 10% off. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com slash SHR. Whether your goal is to build muscle or burn fat, you'll find everything you need at Redcon 1. Need help getting a good night's sleep? Try Fade Out or the most popular pre-workout supplement on the market today, Total War. Sign up for their new transformation challenge and win $10,000 or shop for apparel that people at the gym will know that you are serious about your training. Need a testosterone booster that works? Check out Broomstick. Whatever you need, you'll find the best quality supplements on the market at Redcon 1. Go to redcon1.com. That's R-E-D-C-O-N, the number one.com, or go to superhumanradio.net and click the Redcon 1 banner ads today. How often do you sit with your laptop right on your lap? How much time do you spend on your cell phone? 
Are you in a technology-packed office Monday through Friday? Are you worried about this type of radiation? Now there's something you can do about it. GetLambs.com. This radiation has been linked to infertility in men, glandular tumors, gut microbiome dysbioses, and impaired sleep quality. Now you can provide 360-degree protection to at-risk parts of your body with radiation-proof apparel from GetLambs.com. Comfortable, breathable, and 99% effective. Go to GetLambs.com and use coupon code SHR for 20% off your order of $100 or more. That's GetLambs.com, G-E-T-L-A-M-B-S.com, and code SHR. Hey, this is Carl. For 14 years, you've heard me talk about Can-See Eye Drops, and they being the reason that I do not need reading glasses at now 61 years old. But I regularly get emails and messages from people who've been using Can-See and having some amazing results. Recently, I got an email from a fellow named Chad, who, because he was on dexamethasone eye drops for over six months, developed a cataract. Can-See Eye Drops actually reduced my cataract to the point where even my doctor has a hard time finding it. I will never stop using Cansee eye drops twice a day. I've been using them since 2008, he says. And you should be too. There is no better way to keep your eyes healthy and seeing clearly than Cansee eye drops. Go to wisechoicemedicine.com today and get on board and we will both be looking into the future with very clear vision. Men and women, you've heard about hormone optimization. Do you feel like it's something you want to look into? Renew Life RX.com is the place to start. Their doctors can help you with the solutions. RenewLifeRx.com has a simple process for lab work, consultation, and taking a deep dive into where your hormone levels can be improved. Superhuman radio listeners get 30% off your initial lab work and consultation. Go to RenewLifeRx.com to schedule your no-obligation phone consultation today. Feel younger, get in better shape, and be more productive at RenewLifeRx.com. You're listening to the Superhuman Channel. We're ripped and we're ready. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Alexander Sisti. We're talking about maybe a pathway to finally the most effective non-nutritive sweetener ever. And this could be a game changer for so many people. You know, we're all driven by taste, but it turns out we're driven by much more, much deeper uh, evolutionary edicts and gifts that make sure we don't get fooled. Because let's face it, our drive to wheat occurred millions of years ago because we knew that this was a high form, high delivery rate of energy. And our body probably got fooled numerous times and it affected us. And we evolved to have secondary mechanisms put in place as check mechanisms to make sure that what we tasted, excuse me, was really what we thought it was. So going forward, your, your team is planning on, on, on doing some amazing things, right? Yeah. I mean, I would say that there's kind of two avenues um, going forward. Um, the, the first, as you mentioned already, is, is looking at how these neural circuits and substrates change um, in, you know, different disease states like obesity, but there's also, um, you know, mood disorders. And there's lots of other psychiatric disorders as well that can give you sort of changes in your um, appetite and eating behaviors. And, and this pathway, maybe it's not the one that's affected in depression, but it could result, uh, it could be a way, a new way to kind of intervene on the, on the brain um, and give you a sort of new pathway to, you know, if we could modulate the, these primitive parts of the brain through the gut, um, you know, 
it could give us a, a new sort of therapeutic target for, for other kind of diseases. Um, and, uh, and, and the second thing is, is also moving beyond sugar. So, so we've shown how important this gut brain circuit is for, um, the taste of sugar, but there are other macronutrients that our body needs, proteins and fats. Um, and so do other nutrients also sort of activate this pathway? Um, and then finally, as you mentioned, is there a way, you know, by the, the way you would do it is by identifying the cells that express this SGLT1 receptor and which communicate to the brain through the vagus nerve. Is there a way that we could find some other receptor on those cells or some other way of activating or silencing them um, to more directly sort of reduce our cravings for sugar, um, you know, eliminate that. I, ideally, the, we're not there yet, but um, you know, eliminate that 15% of our, you know, caloric intake. I'm not saying that we're at the stage of curing obesity, but this gives us a, a totally new way of looking at this problem of sugar overconsumption and a very specific anatomical substrate um, that we could try to intervene on and study further to to address these um, huge issues facing our society. So, so we know that fat seems to stimulate satiety. We know that protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems to stimulate satiety. I, as a former 330-pound obese person, mm-hmm. I don't remember sugar ever. I, I don't remember ever eating sugar-based things and going, I've had enough. I usually yeah. ran out. There was none left, so I just stopped. Is there is there a connection between the lack of satiety and this unique molecule of sugar? Um, the, the way that I think of satiety, um, just, just from my sort of basic understanding of physiology, um, is that uh, proteins and fats can actually trigger the release of this hormone, CCK, cholecystokinin, yeah. um, from your this, your small intestine. So there yeah. are microendocrine cells in your small intestine that respond only to proteins and fats and cause the release of this hormone, CCK. Um, and CCK can act on your brain to reduce the feeling of um, satiety. Uh, sorry. To- Hunger. Reduce the feeling of hunger uh, and produce satiety. And actually, sugar does not, it's already, this is not our studies, but it's just known not to cause the release of CCK. So, sort of from my perspective, um, the sort of lack of sating effects of sugar come from that, um, you know, in part, the, the lack of the hormone release of CCK. And the lack of the hormone release has to come from an evolutionary process where we didn't get that much sugar if we came upon a a a, a bees hive and we would feast on honey that day but the rest of the time we were chewing stuff i mean there was not a lot of sweet even you know i had this and i mentioned this so many times and i think the people have been listening to my show for the past 14 years get tired of some of these things but um dr leslie aiello who used to run the winter grand foundation we had this talk when the paleo diet became popular she says we'll never be able to eat like our paleo ancestors because Apples turn, tasted like turnips. They weren't these sweet variations we have today. You could never get enough sugar from eating apples like you can get from eating one today. Yeah. So it's probably a result of the fact that sugar just wasn't that abundant. Yeah, I guess, you know, we just we have these underlying um, biological, I don't want to say vulnerabilities, but, you know, we evolved in certain. Well, in, mo- in modern times, they're, in modern times, they're vulnerabilities. Yes. Yeah. So we have all these neural circuits to seek out and drive the consumption of calories in a, what was usually a very energy scarce landscape. 
And now that we find ourselves in an energy poor landscape where, you know, like I could get a McDonald's, uh, you know, Big Mac for three bucks or five bucks or whatever. Um, you know, now those things that we have had evolved to be protective are now coming back uh, kind of to haunt us because we, ha- right. we don't have any breaks really um, on sort of consumatory behaviors. Yeah. And in fact, when the discovery of the thrifty gene was actually an asset <laughs> a million years ago, yeah, uh, you know, if we were able to survive on less and thrive, we were better suited for the environment that we evolved in. I mean, the time that we are in modernity, you know, modern agriculture and all that sort of stuff, it's a, it, this is a blip on the, on the timeline of our, our existence. So this is fascinating stuff. Will you come back as you learn more about this? Sure, I'd be happy to. Yeah, this is really great. And I hope that you guys discover a way to harness your science and make non-nutritive sweeteners not only as satisfying to the tongue as they are today, but satisfying to the brain as well. So people feel like they can eat one and be satisfied. That, that, that would be a wonderful thing. I think a gift, it would be a gift to humanity. Would. Yeah, I think so. Listen, thanks for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Uh, we're going to take uh, one commercial break. And when I come back, I'm going to tell you about some phenomenon that I'm experiencing uh, that I can blame on. Uh, the uh, coronavirus uh, lockdown. I want to see if some of you are experiencing the same thing. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Superhuman Radio. Don't go away. You've heard about blood flow restricted training since 2006 on SHR, but you're still on the fence. Well, here's the push. BFR is more effective at building muscle than anabolic steroids. That's right. I went there, but it's because it's the truth. My experience with the B-Strong blood flow restriction system is proof to me. And now I'm asking myself why I waited so long. You'll see undeniable changes in the targeted muscles in days and weeks like nothing you've ever tried before. I will never stop using them. Give B-Strong a try. Go to bstrong.training forward slash super hyphen human and use code SHR for 10% off. Quest Nutrition makes bars, cookies, chips, and pizzas out of complete dairy-based proteins. Our products minimize net carbs and sugar without sacrificing taste. Each delicious chocolate-flavored chip, cookie chunk, and crunchy crumble is custom-made to maintain Quest macros. It's time to enjoy foods that work for you, not against you. It's time to enjoy your Quest. 7,451. That's how many people kick the bucket, buy the farm, or cash in their chips every day in the United States. Yep, that means five people are going to meet their maker during this commercial. And no, our commercials are not the cause. Half of those who punch the clock for the final time will do so without life insurance. Call Big Lou at Term Provider before you are number 7452. If you're a 50-year-old male, a tad porky with a touch of diabetes, $1 million of term life insurance may only cost about 200 bucks a month. With more verified five-star reviews than any other Lou on the radio, Big Lou has saved thousands of people thousands on their term insurance premiums. Stop procrastinating and call Big Lou today at 800-560-0301. 800-560-0301. Remember, Big Lou's like you. He doesn't want to be number 7,452. 
Call 800-560-0301 or BigLou.com. Ever wish there was a precise way to gauge your recovery from workout to workout? Or wonder if the money you're spending on your nootropic supplements are actually improving brain function? Maybe you're aging and you're noticing some changes in memory. Wouldn't being able to really test your brain be of great value? Well, now you can with great accuracy with the Brain Gauge. The Brain Gauge lets you test essential components of brain health and track your brain health history and all in the comfort of your own home. Go to GaugeYourBrain.com and use code SHR for $150 off this amazing device. That's GaugeYourBrain.com and SHR for $150 off. Do you remember those delicious toaster pastries you had when you were a kid? You know, the rectangular sugar-filled snacks? Well, guess what? Legendary Foods has just made low-carb toaster pastry. This is the first of its kind, and honestly, these things are amazing. They have three to four net carb, less than one gram of sugar, and nine grams of protein. You can eat them right out of the wrapper or lightly toast them. The only question is, which flavor? Strawberry or brown sugar cinnamon? They're available at eatlegendary.com and Amazon. Spit that out right now. This is the Superhuman Channel. Yes, that's right. We are now available on your Alexa smart speaker. Just walk up to it and say, Alexa, play Superhuman Radio Podcast. And you can listen to the show in the comfort of your own home. And soon the live channel will be back up and updated with all the old shows and run around the clock. And we'll have a separate Alexa channel for that. So get ready. We're still working some of the bugs out of the Alexa channel. Um, you may have to say, Alexa, play Superhuman Radio podcast. But we're going to bridge the word superhuman for some people who say it faster. So it, it, it should open up uh, for you and you can play that. I want to answer a question first for Ivo Sue. I didn't want to put this up during the show, Ivo, just because uh, this is probably outside of the good doctor's uh, wheelhouse. But I'll tell you why this is. This is an interesting phenomenon. CO2 is given off by plants and O2 is, is taken in by plants. No, I'm sorry. CO2 is taken in by plants. and Thank you. I got it backwards. They're the opposite of us. Um, and carbs and sugar are what attract animals to eat the plants and then take them to, uh, to, to various places and poop them out or drop the seeds or whatever. Because we, we actually are like the, we're like the, uh, the honeybees of, of any plants because we take them, we eat them and we help them grow in different places. And so, the more CO2 in the environment, that means that technically there are less plants, and that's a signal to the plant that they need to upregulate their, their production. So this is, this is one of the reasons. The sugar is a way to attract animals like us uh, to the plant to get us to carry them. But you're right. The more CO2 there is, and that's why um, they use CO2 even in in growing marijuana because CO2 increases any of the quote unquote reward molecules of the plant. In the case of marijuana, it's THC. The more, uh, that's how they've gotten marijuana plants to be 32% THC. Now it's, it's ridiculous. It's like 10 times more than when I was a kid, um, because they grow it in enclosed rooms and they enrich the, the surrounding air with CO2. But yeah, and that and that's because those are the things the plant upregulates in order to get 
animals to come and play with it and carry it around, let's say. So I haven't been to the gym now. I don't know. I guess maybe for around 49 days. I've been training at home, but not a lot. I've only trained it a few times a week at home. I just can't get into it at home. I'm sorry. I'm one of those guys that I prefer going to the gym and training. I prefer seeing my friends and talking. But also, I don't have the equipment at home to truly load my muscles the way I like to load them. You know, it's it's that heavy weight that keeps me feeling good. And since I've been away from the gym, I don't know if you have this experience too, but I feel horrible. Uh, I have pains that I've never had before. This is the longest I've taken off. Even when I had surgeries on my foot, I still trained upper body. I still trained the other leg. You know, I still did. I still was active, probably more active than the average person in the gym. But this is this is killing me. I, I you know, I'm starting to understand why so many people are dying from being locked down. So in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, murders are like they've quadrupled. And the local administration say, oh, it's because people undirected, they've got time on their hands. That's not what it is. If people are going stir crazy, number one. Number two, they're feeling oppressed. Whenever you oppress people, they strike out. You tell people they can't do something, they're going to find a way to do it. But also, a $1,200 stimulus check is nothing to somebody who barely gets by on $3,000 a month, you know, a single mom with four kids. And so... I think we're going to start seeing more and more uh, violent crimes, more and more lootings and, and, and robberies and home invasions and so on. But also I don't feel good mentally. I don't, I'm not training and I, I just don't feel good. I actually, for the first time in probably 20 years, feel old. I really do. And it's just because I haven't been in the gym getting my medicine and my medicine happens to be very intense training for me you know i'm not going to be as strong as somebody else out there i'm definitely not as strong as i was when i was in my uh 50s i was really my strongest in my 50s by the way um but i i really am feeling this and i'm starting to think to myself we're doing a lot more harm than good with this lockdown a lot of people are complaining about not feeling good there's a lot of people saying that people with Mental illness and depression are suffering. Hell, some of us who didn't have mental illness and depression may come out of this with mental illness and depression. If you're feeling the same way, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, On air at superhumanradio.net is the way to communicate with me. Uh, I'm hoping that we can start. And, And the worst part is most of these governors... They're misguided. If you've listened to any of my shows the past two weeks, at the end of every show, I do a little thing about COVID and how guided this whole approach is. And that's my opinion. You could have a different opinion. We could both coexist in the same room. That's not a problem. But this is misguided what they're doing to us right now. And the only people that should be in lockdown are the people most susceptible to dying from this, which if you look at the age stratification now, you know, we have really good data now. We have tens of thousands of deaths. The people that are dying are in their 80s, and the large majority of them are in nursing homes. The large majority of them are, are in, in, you know, in, in senior facilities. The large majority of them are actually at the end of their lives. So those are the people that need to be protected. Uh, people with strong constitutions and good immune systems, not so much. 
But uh, I, I am just I, – if I don't get into the gym today – oh, today. Yeah, I, that was a Freudian slip. If I don't get into the gym soon, I, I don't know how I'm going to feel. And our governor here in Kentucky thinks that gyms are, you know, they're not important. They're just not important. I don't know. Uh, but if you are uh, if you're feeling this, I would love to hear from you at onair at superhumanradio.net. And also, if you want to be an investigative reporter, I've got a couple projects. I'd love to put some people on and you get on the air with me and talk about your findings. Fascinating show uh, from Dr. Sisti. Um. I would love to learn more about a sugar substitute that actually satisfies all of the effects that sugar has on the human condition. That would be a big game changer for any company that's trying to make food products that are healthier, really. All right, that's it for today. Uh, I, let's see, tomorrow's Thursday. I think we have a, I think we have a um, Renew Life Rx show uh, tomorrow. And then Friday, Dr. Elizabeth Yurth is coming on to talk about uh, a couple peptides, GHK, CU, and another GHK, and what they're good for. I know they regrow hair, so anybody who's losing their hair is going to want to listen to Friday's show. It's at a special time. It's at 2 p.m. instead of 1. So check us out. See us then. Please share the show. Please share the show. I keep asking people to share the show. Just email it to friends. If you think the show is good, if you think the data, the information is important, please send it to people you know. I right, see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening today and watching. Yeah.